นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามัสสังอยากจะเริ่มในวันนี้ด้วยการขอให้มอบให้แก่ทุกคนที่ฉันไม่ได้บอกให้แก่มอบให้แก่ทุกคนที่ฉันเคยบอกไว้ในวันนี้ด้วยการขอให้แก่ทุกคนที่ฉันเคยบอกไว้ในวันนี้ด้วยการขอให้แก่ทุกคนที่ฉันเคยบอกไว้ในวันนี้ด้วยการขอให้แก่ทุกคนที่ฉันเคยบอกไว้ในวันนี้ด้วยการขอให้แก่ทุกคนที่ฉันเคยบอกไว้ในวันนี้ด้วยการขอให้แก่ทุกคนที่ฉันเคยบอกไว้ในวันนี้ด้วยการขอให้แก่ทุกคนที่ฉันเคยบอกไว้ในวันนี้ And I will do my best to remember to ring my mother. Um, can you hear me down the back, Abramina? Can you hear me okay? The rain is the rain stopping. Richard, can you hear okay? Is the rain? You can hear okay. Okay. Mother's Day, like other festival occasions. We could we could just see it in terms of it. You know, if we were a little cynical, we could see it as just a, a sort of commercial uh, thing that uh, has kept going uh, for not very wholesome reasons. Like you know, sometimes people don't speak very positively about Christmas. You know, for, For the same reason, but, but I think if it was just purely commercial and, and there was nothing really in it, then I don't think it would last. But these kind of observances uh, last, I think, because there's something in them. I think, I think it's a good thing to have Christmas or such celebrations and Mother's Day and and so on, um, because. It's good to remember mother. Yeah. It's not just good because you know, mother was nice to us and when we were children. And if we look beyond the the form of Mother's Day uh, to what could be behind it, you know, the spirit of mother. So, what is what is really being celebrated when we celebrate mother? When I think about it, for me, what mother represents is is that which nourishes. Mother is the nourishing principle, and without mothers, we wouldn't be nourished. And so, to once a year, in particular, to take time to stop and really make something out of that, uh, I think, is a, a wise, skillful, wholesome thing to do. The same as, as uh, in our spiritual life, we have the encouragement to, to uh, reflect on the benefit we've received from our parents, or, or from our teachers, or from those who've gone before. 
at the moment we have Ajahn Tiridamo visiting here at the monastery for 10 days. We're very happy about that. I thought he might come and give a Dhamma talk this evening, but he's, uh, he's been occupied quite intensely in various things for the last week ever since he arrived here, flew here direct from New Zealand and been very busy ever since, so he's taking a bit of a break tonight. But next week he will be uh, giving a Dhamma talk for those of you who plan to be here. But uh, I was speaking to the, uh, the rest of the community here before he arrived and pointing out how Ajahn Tiridhamma was one of the people who built this place. Uh, people who come here these days think, oh, this is a nice place, and uh, hang out and enjoy it and so on, but don't realize often what, what it was like when, uh, when we first came here. The good old days, as they call it. As <laughs> in Suchita likes to talk about the days when you used to have to wipe the snow off the toilet seat. It's true. <laughs> we don't exactly have heated toilet seats these days, but we do have heaters in the bathrooms, and so it's pretty cosy. And, and uh, certainly also during Ajahn Tiridamo's time here, there were lots of challenges, lots of difficulties. There wasn't a, a, an extended community. Um, the groups in Leeds and, and uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh weren't at all happening then. Ajahn Tiridham was the one who, who initiated and sustained those groups in the beginning. And so certainly I was saying to the, the, the rest of the community how important it is to remember those who have brought up the benefit, those who we are indebted to and, and to uh, really bear that in mind. And, and so when they were preparing his room, uh, they put a lot of attention into it. I went and had a look at the room. It's a really nice Room. I mean, Ajahn Tiridhamma walked in and said, wow, he really felt well received. And that's a wonderful thing to do. And that's a, a good thing to do to those who we have, we're indebted to. It's not something that, generally speaking, in our culture that we're encouraged to do. Uh, the way society is, is developed, uh, it's, uh, the emphasis is on what uh, I need and um, how to look after myself and so on. And we pay, pay scant attention to our parents and to those who've gone before and and so on and, and that's unfortunate yeah. to say the least so I think when something like like Mother's Day comes along or any of these other festivals these other occasions that we observe regularly it's good from the perspective, perspective of our practice to stop and think well what's the spirit behind this a lot of our traditions and conventions, if you just look at the form, we may not necessarily see the point of them. But if we're interested in a wise relationship with life, beyond just the superficial, well then we're asked to look deeper. We're encouraged to look deeper just beyond the forms. The form may seem rather pointless, We might be even, you know, certainly when we're adolescents, we're, we're keen to throw out all forms. And that's, you know, it's okay for adolescents to have that attitude. It's, some forms are ready to be thrown out. And, and it's good that adolescents come along with their fresh, enthusiastic energy, wanting to change things and throw things out and, and so on. Or, 
But uh, hopefully the, the, their enthusiasm is, is stewarded and guided by people who are a little bit older and, and wise have been around for a while. And because there are some things, that, the value of which is not immediately obvious. So we don't want to just throw all forms out and traditions and conventions. We don't want to just be bound by them either. We want to, we want to be able to inquire, to ask, say, well, what, what is behind this? And, and to be prepared to not necessarily see the value immediately. You've often heard me talk about the example of learning to do something like Tai Chi, uh, where you read all about it or you hear about how wonderful it is if you can access this Chi energy flowing freely around your body, maintains wonderful health. And so you think, well, I'll have a bit of that. And so you go to your Tai Chi class and then the, the teacher asks you to slowly bend your knees a little bit and raise your arms up like this and, and lower your small back, lower back, come tuck that in a bit. And, and you, you, know, you try to do these things and you start to move and you feel like a, a total wally. You just <laughs> or if you see yourself in the mirror, you look really gawky. and You're not this graceful, beautiful uh, expression of of free-flowing energy that, that a master of Qigong might demonstrate. We, we don't have it. And, and uh, if we're a little rash, we might start suggesting how we could change the form because we don't find it works for us. We don't find it agreeable. It doesn't feel comfortable. But those who've actually you know, spent 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years doing the form hopefully or presumably would know better and, and we'll all, they won't dismiss us and say, you know, don't be silly, don't be so arrogant, you're a little young upstart. It's understandable that in the beginning we may not be terribly you know, keen on sticking with something, but we need to be encouraged. We need to encourage ourselves that with forms and traditions, conventions, to wait and see, to give ourselves trustingly, respectfully and until we see and feel for the spirit that might be behind it. Well, as I said, in some cases there might not be any. Maybe it's a, it's a redundant old form that's ready to be thrown out, but also maybe it's not. So I think these, uh, a lot of the forms and traditions and conventions that we have, uh, as you would expect me to say, belonging to this totally traditional Theravadan uh, Buddhist school, uh, I think they've, they've got a great... Uh, they've got a lot to give us. They've got a great value. And, and when people do come along and, and ask about these forms, I'm never afraid or apologetic about it. Some chap from Newcastle came out the other day and, and he just asked me to teach him how to bow. And he's only just newly come to Buddhism and he's read some books by the Dalai Lama and a couple of other people. And, and he came out here and he, he didn't have any deep philosophical questions or complaints or worries or anything. He just said, oh, could you teach me how to bow? He said, it seems like this is what people have been doing for 2,500 years, and if I'm going to get into the flow of this tradition, I'd like to, have to learn a little bit about the forms. And he wasn't some uh, naive sycophant who you know, was just ready to gobble it all up, hook, line, and sinker, but he had a sense of appreciation for the place of the form and was interested, and I found that very heartening, I must say. But on the other hand, I also understand when people come along and do want to chuck it all out because <laughs> you know, when, I, when I first joined this, 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 this movement, this community, I, I didn't have quite such a respectful and uh, humble attitude towards it all. 
But now having practiced these conventions for a few years, I do see there, there's some real, uh, some real benefit. And they, 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 one of the benefits these traditions and conventions give is that they help contain the spirit of the teaching. This, the fact that this has been done this way for so long by so many people generates a certain sense of containment. And once we can get used to the forms of the conventions and we relax with them, we don't make such a big deal out of them, well, then we start to feel, like with, with, with Tai Chi, once we start to relax into the form, we become familiar with it. I'm told, I've never developed it, but I'm told that that's when the chi starts to flow. That's when you start to feel the benefit. And so one of the benefits of these traditions that we observe is the is sense of sustaining power. It sustains us. There's a lot of challenges on the spiritual path. It's easy to, to have um, conviction in the beginning and, and so on, but how do we sustain it? How do we keep it going? Somebody else was visiting a few days ago. We was talking about uh, all the people that come and go, and particularly on this occasion, we're, I think we were talking about um, I think we were talking about Nino here, <laughs> the new Anagarika from Serbia. You know, how long is he going to last? <laughs> Not being disrespectful or anything, but you know, people come and go, and, and this person was observing. You know, they've been coming here for many years, and and, and they were saying how uh, how many people come and go and. And uh, that's right, they were talking about wanting to sponsor Nino's ordination. And I was encouraging them, he's a good bet, you can put money on this horse, he's, he's a good one. Um, but, uh, yeah, the conversation was about, what, what, what is it, where do you get staying power from? And, and these conventions do help if we are able to just give ourselves into them. You know, rituals have their place, you know, not just for monks, but also for, for, for all people who are following a spiritual discipline. I think rituals have their place. So long, as we're, so long as we're relating to these rituals in a wise way, we don't have to be afraid of them. Now, sometimes people won't engage in the ritual side of, of Buddhism because, well, they have all sorts of reasons, but one of the reasons is that uh, their previous experience with the ritual side of religion is they felt betrayed. I know this my own. This was true in my own case. Some of the religious conditionings I was, I was subjected to in my early life, and purported to be, you know, something that supported well-being and and so on, and uh, they, they turned out to not be offering what I was looking for. And uh, it's very easy to feel betrayed and, and uh, disappointed by that. But that doesn't mean to say all religious conventions and traditions are no good. And so one of the things that uh, I've always found inspiring and helpful in Buddhism, and I think one of the things that is worth emphasizing in Buddhism is that, that the way Buddhists hold beliefs, um, it's not an end in itself. It's not an end. We're not asked to just believe in the Buddha. Even the Buddhist teachings that you read in the scriptures, we're allowed to question them. We're encouraged to question them. And so I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to, to be aware if we're 
we take our commitment seriously, uh, to see what is it that's going to sustain us, what is it that keeps us going, what is it that helps us stay on the path, not just as a, as a monk or as a nun, but also as a committed follower of the Buddhist teaching, what is it that sustains us? And, and confidence or faith is important, but it needs to also be balanced by a willingness to really face, really not face in an aggressive way, but really meet doubt. To really allow doubt, to really value doubt. Probably those of you that have read Ajahn Chah's teachings will have have been familiar with how much doubt he had in his practice. But he said doubt can support practice. Doubt become even a meditation object. And so sometimes people get puzzled by this because also in the, the five hindrances, the five nivaranas, it talks about doubt, uh, wichikicca, as a hindrance to practice. And so sometimes people will ask and say, well, how come Ajahn Chah is saying doubt can help practice and be a meditation object? And yet the Buddha said that doubt is an, ob- an obstruction to practice. Maybe Ajahn Chah had it wrong. Yeah. Well, what was, what's being spoken about in the scriptures as an obstruction to practice, or wichikicca, is skeptical doubt. And what Ajahn Chah was talking about is not skeptical doubt, where we actually grasp doubt and get pulled into this vortex of fear of unknowing, Skeptical doubt is where we're actually lost and caught up in a mood of fear, of uncertainty, or fear of not knowing. But what Ajahn Chah was talking about was that when doubt arises in the mind, when questions arise, that we don't assume the validity of them. We don't just, we're not just fooled by the face value. We're interested not just in the appearance, but in what's behind it. What's the reality? And as I was saying a minute ago, the same with with rituals and traditions and conventions, you know, like Mother's Day. There's a form, but what's the spirit? Yeah. Our practice is always asking us, inviting us to look beyond the way things appear to be. And so with doubt, it can be an obstruction to practice if we assume that the way it appears is a terrible monster. It looks like it's threatening all our contentment, our confidence, our well-being, our hope, our aspirations, our trust. That's what it can look like. But if we don't believe in the apparent nature of doubt, and say, oh, right, not sure. Doubt is not certainty, is it? You doubt, when you say you doubt something, it doesn't mean you say you know something. When we say we doubt something, it means we're not sure. And there's absolutely no problem with being not sure. I mean, the fact is, the truth is, we're not sure most of the time about most things. I mean, what can you be sure about? The only thing we can really be sure about is that everything's changing. I mean, there's not much else you can be sure about. You can be sure you're going to die one day, but we can't be sure about when or how. There's not much that we can really be sure about. So being unsure, being uncertain, even about Buddhism, even about the Buddhist teaching, even about our own ability, doesn't have to be an obstruction if we're mindful. If there's awareness, well-prepared, here and now, body, mind, judgment-free awareness, like I was saying last week, and then we receive this uncertainty, 
then the doubt, actually, the doubt can be the very thing that takes our faith or our trust deeper. So these two things work together, actually. Faith and doubt, they work together. They're like a dynamo. They generate energy. Faith and doubt. And sometimes, uh, for some people, it's, you know, all they look at is the faith. And they don't want to know about doubt. Because you, if you really, you really grasp... Well, let's talk about trust. And even for Buddhists, you, know, you, you can say you trust in the Buddhist teachings. But if we are not mindful, we're not really aware of, of what's going on, this is not knowledge. We don't know. We first come across the Buddhist teachings or, or some aspect of truth, some wisdom, whatever tradition we hear it from, and there's something within us that just says, yes, absolutely, yes, just this big, heartful, yes. And, and you don't even have to convince yourself. It's not just an idea, it's just, it's, yes, you recognize something as true and real. And there's a good feeling with that. And so we can say, I trust. I trust in this. And, but if we're not mindful and not aware, then we can grasp at that good feeling. And then it starts to get close to being a belief. We, we kind of rigidify it if we're not mindful. Even our good quality trust and our faith in, in Buddhist teaching or any other teaching. And in some teachings, it's the case that this is even encouraged. And that's where you tend to get sectarianism, where you get sects or cults or fundamentalism. And you look at what's been going on in Kabul the last, however, I don't know how long, but that, that Afghan chappy who converted to Christianity six years ago. And then they found out and they arrested him and said they're going to kill him because... No, that's not okay. You know, if you're a Muslim, you've got to stay. I don't know if you convert. Well, it's okay. You can reconvert back again, but you can't stay as a Christian. If you do, we're going to kill you. So the people who talk like that, and there are people who talk like that, and they're, and they're saying that, uh, you know, if you don't reconvert, uh, we're going to kill you. And, or if that Kazai guy, if he just buys into the Americans' Christian dogma, then we're going to have jihad you know, all over this one chappy who decided he wanted to be a Christian. Now, people who think like that, their relationship to faith is such that I would suggest that they've been taught they're not allowed to question. They're not allowed to have doubt. And anybody who has doubt is perceived as an enemy. In fact, I think they've more or less said that, that they're such people. But that's not true for all Muslims. You know, there's others who, who actually find they, they're allowed to question. They can question. And what happens is when they question, questioning meets their doubts, and their doubts and faith work together, that their faith goes deeper. And you don't have to feel threatened by somebody converting to another religion. You don't have to be threatened by your own doubts. I mean, I've been through some really tough times, even while I've been a monk. I mean, sometimes it's just been so difficult, just so tedious and so tiring and so challenging and so hard. And I remember once riding down this, in a car down the street and seeing one of these fundamentalist Christian churches and it's a, Oh, God, maybe I just go in and believe in something. <laughs> well, it was just a passing thought. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't believe it. Sometimes our challenges that we are, you know, encouraged to, or challenges we're forced to face in this path of inquiry can be very testing. If we perceive doubts as a threat, to our faith and our confidence, 
well, then we, get, we just increase the struggle and we see there's a sort of sceptical doubt. And it hurts, it's painful. However, if we're mindful, if we're not just believing in the way that it appears to be, well, then we can say, well, maybe this is the thing that's going to take our faith deeper. And faith does have to mature. I mean, like those people who say that that Christian guy should get killed, I mean, I think that's a fairly initial level of faith. And you can get judgmental of that, get very critical of that, and say, oh, how could those people be having such an immature level of faith? Well, in terms of human history, it's not that long ago that, that you know, this culture was going around killing anybody who didn't happen to have a very, very narrow uh, belief about Jesus. You know, I mean, any woman who happened to go collecting herbs was considered a witch. I don't know how many million women were, were slaughtered for, for what reason. You know, it wasn't because of wisdom or compassion, that's for sure. It was a, a lack of wisdom and compassion. It was a very rigid, I would say very initial level of faith. There was faith there, but it wasn't tried and tested faith. And so there wasn't tolerance. There wasn't... Uh, it wasn't an allowance of anything other than a very narrow interpretation of a belief. So in our own case, when we have faith, we can, we can, or when our faith is challenged, we can feel how it feels. We don't have to react. I was uh, impressed with uh, the comments by uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. What's his name? What's Rowan Williams, Archbishop Rowan Williams, and this is, a, I don't know, a year or two ago. Um, those books by F- Philip Pullman, the trilogy, came out. Well, an absolutely rippingly good read. I mean, just really good books. Uh, I think, uh, what is it? The Dark Northern Lights, was it, or something rather? Dark Materials. Dark Materials, that's right. I remember Subtle Knife and Ember Spyglass. Anyway, really good books, and fabulous read. Fascinating, you know, fantasy, but also kind of stimulating inquiry into our assumptions about reality and great books. And, but there were some aspects of you know, the traditional Christian church who were really up in arms about it. I mean, they did book burnings, probably. It's a kind of thing they do from time to time. And how dare they insult, you know. But what Archbishop um, Williams said was he thought this should be compulsory reading for all school children. <laughs> He said, any God that can feel threatened is not a reliable God. I thought, great, right on. That's, that's what we need to hear. Yeah, uh, he's not threatened. His faith is not threatened by questioning. Yeah. When our faith is threatened by questioning, then that's a, that's a fairly initial faith. It's not dependable faith. Yeah. For our practice to be sustained, if we want to keep this thing going, we need to, we need to change our perception of feeling threatened. And when we feel threatened, in whatever situation, when we feel threatened, it's the very place that we are, for whatever reason, making ourselves weak. Now, this is true in relationships as well. You know, we feel threatened in some, some company or other, somebody's company, we feel threatened. What is it we're putting out of that person that makes them so big and strong? And us so weak. That's a good question. It's the only place we can actually get our energy back. It's not likewise with the church or with, with Buddhism or with religious authorities or with anything else. When we feel intimidated or threatened, what is it that we're putting out? What are we projecting out there? Why are we giving 
so much of ourselves away that we feel weak and intimidated? Good question. That's a good question. And such questions and a willingness to receive such questions are really necessary if we want to be sustained on the spiritual path. Faith is great, but faith can also be really embarrassing, like in some of the examples I've already given. Oh, I don't know if I told you that time I was walking down the street and, and, and somebody came towards me pushing a pram. Should I tell you this? There's somebody walking towards me pushing a pram, this man pushing a little baby and pushing me. And he lets go of the pram and puts his hands up in anjali to me. You know, well, that's great, but what about the kid? <laughs> you know, this is faith. That demonstration of faith was very touching, you know. But, you know, I think you should basically, if you've got a kid, you should keep at least one hand on the pram. You know, you put one hand up and pay anjali, but you don't let go of the, you know, the poor kid in the pram. And, but that's what we tend to do sometimes with our initial level of faith. You know, we can become a bit embarrassing. But how does faith get matured? How does our faith really deepen and strengthen? Not just rigid, naive belief and hope. How does it get vast and spacious? It's by a willingness to receive questions. And yet if we really listen to our deep questions, our real questions, they're not comfortable. Real questions are not comfortable. Real questions make me feel uncomfortable. And that's why I'm talking about this this evening, because we need to be prepared for this. We want our religious or spiritual life to make us feel comfortable. That's I want that. I, as conditioned personality, want to feel comfortable and secure and safe. But at another level, I know that that's just, you know, that's just not reliable. That's what I'm in this for. That's what I respect about Buddhism because I realize that this, this conditioned ego self, personality self, is going to die with the body. And as it disintegrates, it's going to get afraid. That's what happens to the conditioned being. But where do we find real security, real safety? It's by letting go of this conditioned being, this personality ego self. So even when we find ourselves not wanting to face questions, not wanting to receive doubts, not wanting to feel threatened or intimidated, that's okay. We need to learn to encourage ourselves to accept that that's okay, to not like being questioned, but to move towards, I would say, an increased willingness to receive those aspects of ourselves where we feel weak, where we feel threatened. And so if we're going to do that, if we're going to be sustained and continue with this practice and have our see and witness our faith, our trust, deepening and strengthening, broadening, becoming more reliable, by engaging doubt, questioning, feeling threatened, the other fact that we really need a lot of is a huge amount of patience. Huge amount of patience. In some schools in the Chinese tradition, they say the three essential aspects of the way is great faith, great doubt, and a long, enduring mind. Mm. Because the faith and the doubt, the trust and the questioning, they work together. They like generate an energy which grinds me away. I can't tolerate that energy. I, as a personality that's full of attachments and delusions, can't tolerate it. But that's exactly what's needed. But to be able to tolerate it, to be able to endure it, we need a huge amount of patience. Ajahn Turadama and I were talking about this this morning. We went for a walk together down to Bolam Lake and 
and we were talking about just this this thing, patience. And we've known each other for 30 years. We were young monks together in Thailand. In fact, we went to Wat Wat Nana Chant around about exactly the same time. Yeah, we've been through a few things together. And one of the things we went through together was was, uh, this uh, way of seeing patience as a terrible ordeal. We're put up with something because we have to. And, and you think, well, this is what the Buddha was encouraging, putting up with something unpleasant because we have to. Say, no, that's not. I don't think now. That's what we were talking about. It's not, it's not, it's not patient endurance. That's not, that's not that, that wonderful, precious quality that is thoroughly willing to release out of all resistance, all resistance to the tension, the tension that comes from great faith and great doubt, that tension that comes from our, our trust and hope in this path of practice and yet engaging the result of our conditioned beliefs and so on, the, the questions that, that emerge out of that, the doubts emerge. That, that tension is perfectly positive and creative and constructive in spiritual life. And there needs to be a willingness to tolerate it without any judgment whatsoever. Now, that, this is not a worldly story. This is not what the world teaches us. You know, the world goes in quite the opposite direction. So you want to make yourself comfortable. You know. If we're only committed to uh, being comfortable, I think uh, we're in for a big disappointment. So anyway, on this evening of uh, remembering mothers in particular, but also uh, reflecting on the ability we have to use our reflective minds to see what's behind the forms and structures and conventions of spiritual life and feel for the spirit and let that be the guiding principle. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.